0: Well, in a church setting, typically there's kind of three seasons. There's Christmas, there's Easter, and there's summer. And summer has now started for sure. We had Royal Family Kids Camp this week, and uh, which was awesome. If you were part of Royal Family Kids Camp, that's the younger version of what we talk about with Track Camp, younger foster kids who get a week of camp, uh, a wonderful experience. And so, if that's you, um, if you were part of Royal Family Kids Camp this week, could you just raise your hand and Waves. so we can let people know how proud we are. Thank you guys for serving this week. <clears throat> what a powerful ministry. Um, it's it's a great reminder always. I got to do uh, speak at a family camp out at Pine Cove Bluffs this week and our family went out there and it's such a great reminder that that what we think of as normative, what is normal for us, just hearing the truth and being taught the truth and even being saturated in the truth isn't normal. Um, uh, also I also got to speak with uh, some cardiologists over at UT Tyler a few weeks ago, um, and, and it's just amazing how just what we consider basic truth the world is not less hungry for than they were 10 or 15 years ago, but more hungry for, which I think is a good indicator of where we are as a culture. We must, as the church, keep the lights on, so to speak. We must continue to teach the truth and continue to engage with God's Word faithfully and uh, in the knowledge that the world is not, is not growing nearer to that in our culture right now, but further, which makes them sometimes even more desperate when they do get just a taste of it. And so that's important for us to stick with that. Um, let me ask a quick question. How many of you have read ahead in 1 Samuel? So has anybody read ahead in 1 Samuel? So so you know that today, you you should have been looking ahead going, man, I can't wait to see what he does with 1 Samuel 15, right? In fact, if there was a, I don't title my sermons, that would just be one stressor too many for me, but the, um, uh, if I was going to title this sermon, it would be, what am I supposed to do with this Um, when we get to this passage, which I think would be appropriate? This was a passage I knew I could not delegate I couldn't take this week off and go, oh, somebody else can teach this one as much as I would have wanted that. Um, so here's the question. I've learned to embrace tough passages in faith. Like we talked about with the shield bearer of the last few weeks, that the, the shield bearer and, and others' examples in Scripture, am I willing to, in faith, engage with God over the tough stuff, or will I only take things that are comfortable for me from God? Will I only take the things that feel good to me from God? I like those passages too. I like the ones that we want to put on t-shirts or on doilies or on our Facebook profiles. I like those verses um, a lot, just like you do, but will I only take them or am I willing to accept what God has for me even when it makes me uncomfortable? We'll, We'll talk more about this as we continue to go through it. We're only going to cover three verses today in 1 Samuel chapter 15. So let's go. child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. So, let's stop there. I think it is right, appropriate, um, that we struggle with something like this, that we say, I don't, I'm not cool with this. I'm not comfortable with this. Um, I don't like this type of stuff. I don't like when God calls people to do this kind of thing. I don't like When God sends the Israelites to drive out all the nations of the Canaanite people, I don't like when God sends a destroyer to kill every firstborn in Egypt. I don't like when God sends a flood and wipes out civilization and resets the race of mankind. It makes me ask questions that I'm not comfortable with, like, is God a moral monster? Is God someone who we would be terrified of if we saw Him as He really is? Will I only take the good things from God? Because is it important, here's what's key, is it important that I make sure that God is always comfortable to me? Is that something that is a high priority to me, that God had better only do things that I approve of, or I need to then now put Him on the judgment seat and see whether or not He actually is God or should be God? What am I going to do with this? So how do we wrestle with it? Let me, let me unpack some of the different theories that are out there in today's world. Theory number one is that this is just made up. It just didn't happen. There's an error in the passage. Uh, maybe this isn't supposed to be here. Maybe this is just some kind of Jewish propaganda um, that the Jews wanted to wipe out a group of people, so they put it in God's mouth. Uh, Maybe they just didn't do it at all, but they wrote it in their history as though they did it to be scary. Uh, Maybe humans just wanted to wipe out an enemy and claim that God is who told them to do it like humans have done a thousand other times. Maybe that's all this is. In some ways, maybe this would be comforting. And in fact, it is part of why many have walked away from monotheistic religions like Christianity, especially Christianity, that these kind of passages um, that we don't we don't like. They're the motivation for someone to deconstruct their faith. They get to a passage like this, and they go, this can't be right, this can't be real, whoever this God is. Um, if, he, if He is God and He does this kind of stuff, I don't want to follow Him. And if it's not God, then I can't trust Scripture. Either way, I'm out. In my opinion, that is That is a lazy way to engage with this. It's certainly not a faithful one that I understand it. I get it. I'm right there with you that you would say, I don't like this. I don't want this. But so instead of us skimming past it or trying to explain it away easily, we're going to jump into it. This is not uncommon even in the Christian world today. Many of the mainline denominations have decided, they just walked away from passages like this. They say it's ignorable or it's irrelevant um, or God's word is just this kind of, a guidebook that we kind of have to read it like you're kind of reading about, you know, I don't know, Wonderland or Dr. Seuss World or something like that. And so the parts you don't like, you just leave out. If you don't like a section of a Dr. Seuss book, skip it. I did it with my kids all the time when I was reading to them as a kid, as when they were kids and they would, some of them catch me when I would double up on pages because they were long books and it was time to go to bed. So it was a, like we just, we just skipped through that kind of stuff. Sometimes they caught it, sometimes they didn't. In some ways that would be comforting to us. And this isn't that fringe By the way, even some mainstream or recently mainstream evangelical teachers have begun to do this as well. In his recent book, Irresistible, Andy Stanley noted that, quote, when it comes to stumbling blocks to faith, the Old Testament is right up there at the top of the list. By the way, I agree with him on this. When I say, If you were to say, what are the passages that disturb you the most in the Bible, many of them would be in the Old Testament. They would be the ones, and by the way, of the Old Testament passages, I'll just go ahead and tell you, this is actually my personal number one. I find these three verses the most maybe uncomfortable in the entirety of the Old Testament um, for several reasons. Here's, but what he, here's what he goes on. Here's his solution to this problem. Um, Andy Stanley says in what he calls, quote, The Invitation, one of the chapters in the book, and I'll just go ahead and tell you, that always worries me. Um, that's like uh, another author who put entitled a book called I Am, and, and it had nothing to do with Yahweh I Am, it was about me, I Am. Um, that's always a problem when you take something like this out of Scripture and you use it to apply to something totally different. We have a thing called the invitation in the church. It's called follow Jesus. We're inviting you to follow Jesus. To have any other type of invitation is a little creepy to me. But anyway, in, in what he, the chapter he calls the invitation, he says, would you consider unhitching your teaching of what it means to follow Jesus from all things Old Testament? That's interesting. I don't know what happened there, but that's really interesting. Um, As comforting as this easy path might be, I think it ignores one of the strengths of our faith. The truth is, there aren't always easy answers. And it's one of the things Christianity embraces, is that there aren't always easy answers. Many other faiths, they have easy answers to these type of things, and we don't. We don't pretend like there is one. Um, in fact, every time somebody tries to offer Jesus an easy answer to problems like the suffering of mankind or the problem of evil or things like that, Jesus smacks down their easy answer and delivers to them a much more complicated one, a much more difficult one. Those type of things are really challenging for us. Is it as comforting as this path might be? One of the things it costs us is a transcendent God, a God who is comfortable to me is what happens. That's, that's not healthy. Is that, is that plausible? Is it plausible that a being who is more as further transcendent, more beyond me than say I am than insects? That everything he does and says would be comfortable to me? Imagine if you tried to explain driving to an insect. How hard it would be and how uncomfortable and how how outside of, of their thinking some of that stuff would be. That wouldn't that wouldn't make any sense at all. When, so think back on, it's like taking statistics. No one understands statistics. Did you take statistics? No one understands it. The professors, I think, maybe they do, maybe. It's hard to know. How do you evaluate that? Um, they say stuff and you go like, okay, I mean, you're the professor. I guess you get this. I guess you understand this. But you, you put it, so the, when it comes to stuff like this, when it comes to, especially judgment, when it comes to judgment, the only person who understands it is God. All the rest of us are inferior. We, are, we don't understand it. We don't get it. And we're going to unpack that a little more. So, yes, listen, I would love for this passage to not be relevant or to not be applicable or to not even be scriptural. I'd be all about that. That would not bother me. If it turns out that it's like at the end of the book of Mark, um, if you've never seen this, you might turn over there at the end of the book of Mark. There's a little, in your Bible, there's going to be a little note that says, hey, uh, most of this, at uh, chapter 16, verse 9 and following, is not in the most ancient copies. It probably shouldn't be there. Well, that's again, that's, that's disturbing, but it's good scholarship to recognize the oldest copies don't have it. If we found some ancient copies of 1 Samuel and they didn't have uh, 1 Samuel 15, listen, I'd be all about it. I'm, I'm fine with that. I'd be great with that. would not cause my faith to be challenged at all, but though its existence is uncomfortable to me, it does not shake me. Why? Listen to what Tim Keller said. Only if your God can outrage you and challenge you will you know that you might be worshiping a real God and not a figment of your own imagination. If your God never disagrees with you, you might just be worshiping an idealized version of yourself. So, if you make God, if you make God in your own image as to what makes you comfortable, then you will have a comfortable something, but it won't be God. So, we start with these truths that God is merciful and slow to anger, that God does not change, and that God's calls for the destruction. Of the Amalekites. How can all three of those things be true at the same time? Let's unpack it. One, it is true that God has the sovereign right to judge. Just by the right of his power, by the right of his creation, he is the sovereign right. He has the right to rule because he is the creator and sustainer. He has the right by sheer power alone, if he wanted to, for over all of creation. All of creation is His by creation. He wouldn't even have to kill. All He would have to do would be to remove His sustaining power and all life would end. There's no life outside of Him. Now, that's not very comforting, but it's still true. The next one is much more comforting to me, is that God has the right to call for judgment like this because of His knowledge and perfect judgment. God knows all things. He knows not only the behavior of mankind, but He knows the hearts of mankind. He knows what will happen, and He knows, catch this, all possible things that might happen. So, God knows what would happen if He calls out for the judgment and execution of the Amalekites, and God knows what would happen if He didn't which allows him to be in the perfect and the only person with the perfect perspective to be able to judge rightly when and how to execute judgment. And don't, let's not get be confused. That's what's happening in this passage. This is not war. This is execution. I'll show you that more in a second. Imagine a in village infected with plague, and you are the person responsible to decide who gets to try to leave this village and who doesn't. The plague is, is easy to catch. Its infection rate is high, and its death rate is 100%. Who would you let leave? What if you knew for sure that letting the infants out doomed the rest of mankind? Would you let them out? Well, you would probably say no, but people would call you a monster if you didn't. Because imagine that God does know all the consequences of his actions and of our actions and all possible consequences. So this puts him in a position to be able to perfectly judge what's going on. What if the Amalekites aren't defeated? What then? We don't know. He does. So God's perfect understanding of all things, and he has judged. And he has judged now and selected Saul to be the executioners of his judgment. He used different tools to execute his judgment. For the people of Israel, he had them wander in the desert for 40 years until an entire generation of them was dead. In that case, he used old age and hardship to execute judgment on a whole generation of the Jewish people. We're going to read a passage where he calls in Babylon to execute judgment on his own people. He uses the flood to execute judgment. He uses fire with Sodom and Gomorrah to execute judgment. Several times, including this one, he uses the sword, someone's sword, to execute judgment. He has selected Saul for this. He always has the right to do this, and he always claims the right to do this. This one says in Genesis 9, 5, and 6, For your life, this is right after the flood, right after the flood, he's speaking to Noah. And for your life, blood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it from every man, and from man. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. Notice, God takes very seriously when humans kill other humans. He takes his human life very seriously, but catch that he has just flooded all of known civilization and killed thousands, maybe tens of, maybe hundreds of thousands. We don't know. Because he is the only one with the perspective to know when to call for, cause, allow the death of a human. Not humans. We don't have the right to do that unless he gives the right. Some hold God responsible for being God, but they don't let him be God. They don't, he's responsible because he's God, and yet they don't give him credit for the fact that he therefore knows when, how, and who to execute judgment on. And that's, that's tough for us because we don't agree with him. And he's not interested in our vote because we don't know when and how to judge. He's either God or he isn't. If he isn't, then don't hold him responsible for being God. If he is, then let him be God. This is what C.S. Lewis says when asked the question of judgment. He says, either God can judge rightly or he cannot. If he can't, we are all of us without hope. If God doesn't know how to judge, well, then we're hosed, right? Well, we got nothing. If God does know how to judge, then we can let him do it because he's the only one who's going to know how, the only one who's going to be able to. So let's keep looking at this. What about the Amalekites? Okay, let's take a minute and look at them and figure out who these people who have fallen under God's judgment, what makes them susceptible to this? Well, they were a nomadic people, ancient descendants of Esau, who lived in the desert wilderness regions north of the Red Sea. In Exodus 17, in Deuteronomy 7, and in Deuteronomy 25, we see the people of Israel being hounded by the Amalekites and forced into battle with them while they're wandering on their way to Canaan. And in fact, in the 40th year of their uh, wandering, so their last year, at their most vulnerable, the Amalekites attacked them. Uh, The Amalekites attacked unprovoked with the intention of wiping them out before they can find a home in Canaan. Also, it's safe to assume that the Amalekites worshipped Baal. Now we don't, we don't know for sure much about the Amalekite culture because they don't exist and they haven't for a long, long time. Um, but they probably sacrificed to Baal. They probably worshipped the Baals. Everyone else in that region did. Know about the Baals that the idols of the Baals included typically either ovens in their stomach or metal hands, bronze hands, so that the people could set their living infants onto the um, white hot hands or into the oven belly of the Baal as an act of sacrifice. This is a deeply wicked culture, and they served a deeply wicked God. Now, the other thing that's intriguing to me about this is that God had waited 300 years, 300 years since the Amalekites had attacked Israel. You think, wow, that's kind of wild. Why? That seems unjust almost to wait so long to attack people that much later? Well, maybe. Maybe God is slow. Look at Genesis 15. Genesis 15, 15, and 16. This is him talking to Abram about attacking, um, about, about invading Canaan. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And they, meaning Abraham's descendants, shall come back here in the fourth generation for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. In other words, God told Abraham, hey, I'm going to give your descendants this land that you're in. Abraham was in Canaan. I'm going to give them this land that you're in. But it would be unjust to wipe them out now. They're not wicked enough. They're not evil enough to deserve being wiped out yet. So I'm going to wait until they are, and when they are, I'm going to send your people back. Notice the justice initiative on God's part here. God is considering their crimes before He brings about judgment against them. And how long does it take before He sends Abraham back? Almost 500 years. America's been in existence only half that long. 500 years before they... may be coming back on. Um, so, 500 years before um, they have this... But 500 years before, God told them, I'm going to send, you, you send your people to destroy these people. But they're not wicked enough yet. Well, in the same way, the Amalekites, though they attacked Israel, God is saying, it's not time yet. There may still be repentance in their hearts. They may still be willing to, turn their, to change their ways. In fact, we have this interesting thing unpacked in 2 Peter. You guys remember this? In 2 Peter chapter 3, because this is talking about eternal judgment. But do not this, overlook this fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is a thousand years, and a thousand years is as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, um, as not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and its work that are on it will be exposed." Some might say it's been 2,000 years since Jesus was here and said he was going to come back. God is super slow. And what's taking him so long? God's saying, no, no, I'm not slow. I'm patient. There are still more people who need to hear the good news of Jesus Christ. There are still people who will respond. There are still people who will repent. A day will come when it's Time. A day will come. It took 500 years before it was time to send the Hebrews into Canaan. It took 300 years before it was time to execute judgment on the Amalekites. It takes apparently at least 2,000 years before it's time to execute judgment on the world. We shouldn't be urging him for this. We should be saying, thank you, God, for your patience. Now, for us, it'll be good news when he comes back. But for our lost family and friends, we should say, if you could wait just a little while longer. If you could just wait a little while longer, that'd be great. 2,000 years isn't very long to let his gospel saturate every ear of mankind. And I also want to offer you, this is some things about God and about who God is and that tree, that and we're going we're gonna to even discuss this a little more, but I want to also bring in some scholarship that may be helpful to you when you engage in a passage like this, especially this one. Um, if you're interested in it, there's a great book by a guy named Dr. Paul Kopan called Is God a Moral Monster? And he engages with the scholarship of this passage and ones like it. There's another one called How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth that engages with several of these issues. Um, At least some of what we're reading here we know is culture and language. At least some of what might bring us some comfort is that. In the literature of Middle East at this time, warfare literature used a lot of understood hyperbole meaning they all knew not to take it literally when someone said certain things or when proclamations were made in certain ways. This has not changed, okay? Imagine if I came to you one Sunday and said, man, did you catch the football game last week? Did you see that play where the Raiders blitzed the defensive line and just annihilated them, right? The quarterback retreated to avoid being destroyed, got away from the advancing horde and threw a bomb right before the Vikings sacked him. Now, you would go naturally, did anyone survive? Right? Did anyone live through that encounter? People were blitzing and annihilating and attacking and retreating and throwing bombs. And and you'd be like, what on earth? Did anyone live through the experience? No, you wouldn't say that because I thought about using an example of the cowboys, but you would then know I wasn't telling the truth about any of that (laughs) stuff. So, so the cowboys slaughtered that. No, they didn't. Anyway, so like even metaphorically, but the, 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 you wouldn't do that because you know not to take the language I'm using literally. Now, you don't think I'm just making stuff up unless I use the cowboys as an example. You wouldn't think I was just making it up. You would know I was telling you something actually that happened, but I would be using this warfare language to describe what happened. Does this make sense? We see it all over the Middle East from this era. Any time anyone defeats anyone in a battle, they do it down to the last man. They destroy everyone who lives, every man, woman, child and living thing. Like that's what the the Hebrews, there's several stones out there that reference the fact that Israel was utterly destroyed and every, every every single Israelite killed. No they weren't. That's that is a and no one would have thought they were claiming literally that that happened. They would know that that was to be taken as a type of metaphorical language about the defeat. Well, here's what's wild. Did you all know that after 9-11, there was a big push in America to remove a lot of this language from sports announcement after 9-11 because it was so traumatizing for people sometimes to, to hear some something. It didn't work. It never does. But that was part of the mindset. We like this type of language. This phrase, especially devoted to destruction, is one that is often used to reference, execute judgment, go in and defeat them, But it doesn't mean exactly the way we hear it in our ears. Even God uses it about His own people. Listen. In Jeremiah 25, 8 and 9, "...therefore thus says the Lord of hosts, because you have not obeyed my words, behold, I will send for all the tribes of the north." declares the Lord, and for Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, and I will bring them against this land and its its inhabitants and against all these surrounding nations. I will devote them to destruction and make them a horror, a hissing, and an everlasting desolation. So did God bring in the Babylonians to defeat his people and, and put them into slavery? Yes. Did he destroy Israel to such a degree that no one would ever live there again? No. Not literally. So in the, in the figurative language of this time and of this era, everyone would have known what was being said here. So, is, by the way, is this even true of the Amalekites? Did, though their town, this city was destroyed. And by the way, Copan does a really good job of showing how a lot of times this language in the Middle East meant, if you fight back, we're going to wipe you out. We, they didn't chase down necessarily everyone who fled. We're coming to your city, and everyone who stays and fights, we're going to wipe you out. That was, a common, that was a common practice. That's probably what happened in Jericho. If you flee, we're not coming after you, but everyone who stays and fights may get wiped out. So were the Amalekites, in fact, wiped out? No, they weren't. We know because later in this same book, 1 Samuel chapter 27 Verse eight. Now David and his men went up and made raids against the Gersharites, the Gerzites, and the Amalekites, for these were the inhabitants of the land from of old, as far as sure to the land of Egypt. First Samuel thirty one. Now when David and his men came to Ziklag, on the third day the Amalekites had made a raid against the Negev and against Ziklag. First Chronicles four forty three. They defeated the remnant. This is this is. Um, several years later, and after they defeated the remnant of the Amalekites who had escaped, and and they have lived there to this day. So, though the next the rest of this chapter, there's going to be the claim made that the Amalekites have all been wiped out again. That's probably not meant to be taken literally, meaning as in historically, every single one of them was. We have executed God's judgment on these people. Maybe they were supposed to, and they failed to, and that cost them later. In fact, how many of you are, are, are aware of the story of Esther? Are you know, familiar with the story of Esther? You know what Haman was? Haman was an Amalekite. He was, in fact, a descendant of the king of the Amalekites, Agag. We'll get there um, later, uh, next week. What do we as Christians... Here's what's wild. When we run into this type of passage, um, having laid the foundation... I want, and I want to lay the foundation for us we to look at this. What does this mean? What do we do with this? What do we do with a God who is just, who is righteous, who does bring judgment on mankind, regardless of sex, regardless of age? Is God just rescuing through death a bunch of children and infants from the torture that their parents, our own parents would have put them through, and is therefore rescuing them to come be with Him? I certainly think that's reasonable that that's part of what's happening here why he allows infants and children to be killed in this or why he calls for them to be killed why does he why is he call for the for the animals to be killed for example well this is an execution this isn't war that's very clear in the language there's no celebration they don't have some big party afterwards there's not songs written this is i have found them guilty this is only larger than when he said i have found the sons of eli guilty and now they're going to die by the sword period this is i have found the amalekites guilty of crimes and sins against me that i have deemed in my perfect knowledge are worthy of execution therefore i'm sending you Saul to be the executioner this is not you don't take you're not supposed to take any pillage from this you're not supposed to take any joy in this this is not some great highlight moment you're going to write songs about you just go do it because this is what i've decided is right in my perfect Judgment. Righteousness and justice are the same word, by the way. In the Greek, they're the exact same word. Righteousness and judgment. Judgment, I mean justice, justice means to do right. Righteousness means to judge justly. The two things mean the same thing. And God is judging justly here. So, what I've learned over the years is though the water may seem warm and lukewarm and hard to stomach at the surface, when you dive deep, you get down to the cool water when you really get to know God in this. When you really get to engage in God's perfect, long suffering patience, even for these people who unprovoked attacked his people. To understand, he still seeks their rescue even in the midst of some of this. So, what do we as Christians do with this? Well, it's a challenge for us, obviously, in some different ways. Um, but I want to I make sure you hear this, this distinction, this, this power, this authority. Do we fear God? Well, yes. In a sense, yes. Um, I remember I'm of that age when the principal, when I got in trouble, would ask me, do you want me to call your dad or do you just want me to give you pops here? And let me just tell you, I didn't have to pray about that. That wasn't something I had to like, well, like, give me a few minutes. It was, he pops here. In fact, could you be willing to sign something promising me you'll never tell my dad what I'm getting in trouble for here at school? Like, like I would really rather just, just stay here. But here's what's wild. I, I didn't fear my dad in the same way that someone breaking into our house should have feared my dad. Someone breaking into my house should fear my dad at one level, and I feared my dad at a very different level, at the level of knowing he loved me more than I love even myself. That he would, he, I was not a child of his wrath. He wasn't going to pour out judgment on me, but he would bring justice and discipline into my life, and so I feared some of that, and I think that's healthy. We have a healthy fear of God. We confess that God is just and patient and righteous and sovereign. We learn about Him and we commune with Him. We live under Him as Lord, accepting that, of course, there are things that someone who is almighty creator of heaven and earth is going to have things that we don't understand and that don't make us comfortable. That would be weird if everything God did made us comfortable. That would be weird. So what do we do instead? So do we engage in a holy war now? Well, sort of. We do, but Christ, as a better messenger than Samuel, sends us against the gates of hell, not just against human gates. The era of God's people being sent as judgment against another group of people like this, I believe, is over. There's no need for that. What we now do is we bring the gospel, and our battle is against something much bigger, they were being sent to fight the forces of evil in the, in, in, according to human beings. We now fight against the forces of evil as the forces of evil themselves, the spiritual evil and the lies behind this type of thing. I'll, I'll mention the Apostle Paul's uh, thoughts on this when we wrap up in a moment. So instead now we live with a healthy fear of God, a deep respect for Him. At South Spring we don't take ourselves too seriously, but we take our living worship of Him very seriously. We live in a healthy fear—the fear of the Lord. We take our own sins seriously. The Vine's Dictionary defines this defines fear of the Lord this way: a wholesome dread of displeasing God. And if you have a healthy relationship with a dad or authority figures in your life, you can imagine this. If you don't, it can get really confusing for us sometimes to wrap up in this. But it's a wholesome fear. It's a recognition of that he loves us and that he is also righteous and that he loves us. That his judgment is perfect. Those things continue to pile on top of each other. Um, How a criminal fears the man of the house and how his own children fear him should be very, very different. Um, I loved the good gifts that my dad gave me as his child. And I feared his ability to bring discipline and consequences into my life. The God, here's what's shocking. Here's what's so amazing about all of this. That this God, who by definition must be perfectly just in order to be God, must be perfectly righteous in order to be God, must never wink at sin in order to be just and righteous, also loves you and me. Also chooses you and me, treasures you and me. That is, that's what should be so shocking about this, isn't that there is a, a just and righteous God who sometimes executes judgment through fire, sometimes through flood, sometimes through the sword, sometimes through famine, sometimes through snakes, and will someday bring about a perfect judgment on all of mankind. What is shocking is when he loves us and says, I see your inability to face my perfect judgment, so I provide the solution to that problem, myself. That there is a God who says, I won't settle on just my just wrath, but also on my gentle mercy poured out on you. And that's shocking to us. He offers us adoption and the abundant life as His sons and daughters, and we don't want to settle for anything less. So having laid this foundation, we'll dive into the rest of the passage next week. Um, it, is, it continues to be an uncomfortable passage, but it has a lot to teach us, especially those of us who are more, the, the more religious types. There's some great lessons in it, and so I hope you'll come back for that as well. So in this time, we're about to have a time of invitation. And in that time, the, the thought is, is that God is working in us. That's the purpose for this time is that God is working in us, and we need to be listening to him. Even when the air conditioning's gone off and we're all like nine cents in a coma, Um, that we would say, what is God speaking to me? What do I need to accept? What do I need to confess? What do I need to take seriously about what he's called me to? He's called me to live this mighty, abundant life. Am I? Am I living that out in my life? Am I living that out in my marriage? Am I living that out with my children? Am I living that out in reality? If not, passages like this should remind us, we need to take that stuff seriously. That's not somebody to be toyed with. At the same time, we recognize He is the one who empowers us to do that. So whatever the Lord is speaking to you about, I hope you'll be listening. If you've been through our welcome home process and you're ready to come and join our dysfunctional family, you can also do that during this time of invitation. If you want to come and pray with us for any reason or over in the corner, we would love to do that too. So stand if you will. Guys, and let me read to you what the Apostle Paul, his comment on the holy war that we're still a part of. He's very clear about this. Ephesians chapter 6. Our temptation to make this national, or sometimes even political, is a mistake. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places, Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. The very words of God.